0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home.
0: You have a band, good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby, it's good, no matter what, there's music in the
2: the air! Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times.
1: And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome singer-songwriter Joan as Policewoman for a sampling of her take on
2: American soul music. And later on, Greg and I will review the latest comeback record from heavy metal giants, Metallica. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news.
1: That, of course, is Elvis Presley, a man who has been on uh, every musical format known to man. I'm not (laughs) sure if he was on 78 RPM records, Jim, but he certainly was on 33 and a thirds and 45 RPMs. He survived into the 8-track cassette era. He he survived into cassettes, CDs, MP3 files are being traded with Elvis Presley on them as we speak. And now he's part of yet another... New musical format that is about to be introduced in the next few weeks called Slot Music. The smallest yet. Tiny little card, a little disc that you can put into your cell phone or your MP3 player or your computer, play an entire album of 29 artists at this point. People like Rihanna, Neo, Robin Thicke, Chris Brown, Akon. Leona Lewis and Elvis Presley. Mm. Uh, The four major labels trying to find yet another way to sell music to consumers. Consumers, uh, as we know, are not buying music in the quantities they used to. And the music industry is desperately trying to find a format that consumers are going to want. So what we're seeing here is the loss of tangibility yet again. In the music format. You used to get these big plates, these big 78 RPM and 33 and a third records. Something worth spending your money on. And now you've got this little tiny thing that you can put and basically squeeze between two fingers and plop it into your little tiny cell phone and it's going to give you all this musical
2: content. Well, of course, the question remains is why you would buy such a thing when you could just download the music direct to your cell phone or your computer. The New York Times, when they wrote the story talking about the rollout of this new SanDisk slot music format, they ran a picture of the old kind of cardboard record that you'd sometimes get in the <laughs> 70s on the back of a cereal box and they were say, basically saying you know what's the cheapest way we can give you music there is some good news though for audio files. it is uh, an mp3 file but it's a slightly higher quality than many of them you're downloading and also it's free of drm the digital rights management software that prohibits you from copying it from say your computer onto your cell phone
1: there's one big problem here though jim it costs fifteen dollars You can get all of this content and more for free right now on the internet. I'm not sure that consumers are going to want
2: to spend 15 bucks for
1: something they can get for free.
2: Once again, trying to put out the raging inferno with a water pistol. Greg, that, of course, is one of the greatest anti-war songs of all time. Us and Them by Pink Floyd from the Dark Side of the Moon, a song that would have been unimaginable without the keyboard playing of Richard Wright. Rick Wright died at the age of 65 two weeks ago, September 15th. He was a founding member of Pink Floyd, was there from the first album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, all the way through the end, and I consider, as every real Floyd fan does, the end to be the wall. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because once Waters left the group and and uh, there were two camps in, in bitter acrimony, it was never again Pink Floyd. I think the real timely story here is that that means, once and for all, the only mega band you and I have ever admitted that we would be happy to see reform. <laughs> I mean, keep your yeah. cream, keep your eagles, keep your Led Zeppelin even. I would have loved to have seen the original four members of Pink Floyd play again. Wright was one of those quiet people in the background of one of the most famous bands of all time. What Charlie Watts was to the Rolling Stones, you know, Mm -hmm. you would never put posters of them on your wall. That's what Rick Wright was. But he was key. He was integral to the sound of Pink Floyd. He was simultaneously, talk about ambition, simultaneously going to the London School of Music and Architecture School. Mm -hmm. You know, architecture was supposed to provide the solid career. Instead, all it did was link him up with the guys with whom he would found Pink Floyd. He was a huge jazz fan, always brought a lot of the jazz undertones, the more more musicianly end of Pink Floyd to the proceedings. Gilmore got all the credit as the guitar god, and and Waters was the conceptualist, but Wright was really the glue that held all the different things together. Hugely influenced, as I said, by jazz, but not in a flamboyant way. He said that while somebody like Dizzy Gillespie would want to play dozens of notes per bar, he wanted to be like Miles Davis and play one note bar, long, beautiful, drawn-out sound. In fact, years later, Gilmore said he realized that if you listen to the chords of Breathe from Dark Side of the Moon, it's a, it's a straight nod to Kind of Blue by mm-hmm. Miles Davis. In the wake of uh, Wright's death, Gilmore said, it was musical telepathy that I had with him. I never played with anybody else like him. Without Us and Them, without The Great Gig in the Sky, both of which he wrote, what would Dark Side of the Moon have been? Wright deserves an homage, and that's what I wanted to do for him. So I wanted to dig a little bit deep uh, Uh, I am such a fan. I even love his 1978 solo album, Wet Dream. But I'm going to play (laughs) something. That's Digging Deep. That's Digging Deep. I want to play something from Adam Hart Mother, which is one of his original compositions. He uh, wrote and sang the song. It's called Summer 68. Adam Hart Mother came out in 1970. And it's kind of one of these typical hippie looks at an idyllic lifestyle of the 60s. However, from the jaded point of view of a rock star, it's about a groupie and a one-night stand. You know, some, some really great lines. We said goodbye. Before we even said hello You know, kind of the passing nature of life Rick Wright of Pink Floyd Dead at 65 This is one of his greatest songs Summer of 68 on Sound Opinions Pink Floyd from 1970, summer, 68, with Richard Wright, dead at 65. I feel burning
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions uh, and that is a little bit of To Survive the new album from Jonas Policewoman otherwise known as Joan Wasser, a classically trained violinist from New York City. Quite a resume for for Joan Wasser. She's played with a number of notable uh, musicians over the years, Mary Timony, Dam Builders, Antony and the Johnsons, sort of the the violinist of first call when whenever yeah. you need some some of that on your on your record. People like L- Rufus Wainwright and Lou Reed have sung her praises. She had a long relationship with Jeff Buckley
2: in the years before Jeff died tragically in 1997. Now she's making incredible music, though, Greg, as you said, as Joan as Policewoman, and she came by the studio to play us some songs and to have a chat.
1: We are here with Joan Wasser, otherwise known as Joan as Policewoman. Joan, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: So let's get right to the chase. let us I mean, you've told the story a million times, but... I think a few listeners out there are probably curious as to Joan as Policewoman. A certain 70s cop show on TV. Yeah,
3: Yeah. there was a mid-70s cop show called Policewoman starring Angie Dickinson. Yeah. Sergeant Pepper. She worked out of San Francisco, and her name was Sergeant Pepper. Because she was undercover, (laughs) you know, she got to wear, like, Halston suits. You know, she never had had to wear the uniform, so she always looked extremely cool and was tough. And I think it probably was the first drama starring a woman.
1: Is that right? Wow. Yeah,
3: I think so. Certainly
1: police drama, I would imagine, right?
2: Yeah, but I
3: think, I mean, drama. You know, we have Mary Helen Warren, stuff. Yeah. Uh Drama. Anyway.
2: Interesting. It's a long way from the flying nut. There's no doubt about it. That's right. Yeah.
3: That's right. And I had begun playing solo shows in around 2000 or something, and I was going under my name, and people thought that I was playing solo violin shows because Mm -hmm. I just really only played violin previously. So I had been looking for a name to sort of cover all the music that I made as a songwriter and a singer, and um, I was wearing some sort of particularly – 70s polyester or pale blue pantsuit or something, and my friend said, "Joan, you're channeling Angie from Police Woman." So I just took on the name. Thanks for laughing. I'm really glad. Uh, that's, that's, no, no that's it cool. isn't.
2: That's great. And so, so you take on this rock and roll persona when you are Jonas Police Woman, the band is Jonas Police Woman. You, you don't want to mess with Jonas Police Woman. No, you don't. You know, whereas Joan Wasser, you go, well, you know. Oh, yeah, I think you'd still be in trouble yeah, messing exactly. with you. But, Joan, it's a fascinating uh, uh, journey that you've taken through these two albums uh, as Jonas Police Woman. The new one's called To Survive. Can we take you through that a little bit? I mean, because you were a classically trained pianist and violinist early on.
3: Not pianist. Not piano. No, right. I took about three months from my mom's friend when I was eight, and I actually brought in the sheet music to light my fire, and she said, I'm not teaching you. <laughs> so uh, that was my piano training. So, yeah, but I did study violin. Violin classically a, a lot
2: more seriously, all yeah, the way up through Boston seriously. University, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. What wow. was it about that instrument that, that you loved early on?
3: It was to- – I grew up in times where they offered musical instruments in the third grade in public school, you know, and they came and did an assembly of violin, viol, cello, and bass, and thankfully I picked the violin probably because it looked the most like a machine gun. <laughs>
2: um, and I don't know – Easier to carry than a yeah, cello as well. No, it
3: is. And I just – Took to it, you know. I just liked it a lot and started taking it more seriously. Well, I thought I was taking it seriously until I got to college and there were people there that had been playing since they were three and had been practicing a lot, a lot more than me. So it was... It was cool. I learned a different style of discipline when I went to school, which was great, which has really helped me actually throughout my life.
2: So you were up at BU, you're studying classical violin, and then you get en- enmeshed in, in Boston's rock scene, the indie rock world. How did you come to start playing with people like Mary Timoney and the Dam Builders? And, and what was that like? I mean, because it's a separate world.
3: Yeah, yeah, it it was. But I had always been really into a lot of music. I... um. It was a great thing. I I grew up an hour away from New York, so I would go in and see the big shows, you know, which for me were like Adam and the Ants, Susie and the Banshees, <laughs> Echo and the Bunnymen. But in my in my town there was a club, an all ages punk rock club, which was incredible because I got to see all these bands come through and because it was all ages, I could go. I sold Jolt Cola for a dollar behind the counter. All right. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Pre-Red um, Bull, this was.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, way
2: pre. Yeah. Way. And this is Connecticut.
1: Yeah, yeah,
3: this is Norwalk, Connecticut. Yeah. And they,
1: and they had a punk club, and and you saw national touring acts coming through I there? I kind of like I
3: saw Sonic Youth play. I saw the fall play. I saw Black Flag play. Oh, that's cool. Oh, man. That was one of my first shows ever when I was like 15, you know? I was like... <sighs>
1: My life is different now. <laughs> really? So you Absolutely. were the punk, the punk rock, the classically trained punk rock violin player.
3: I was the blonde mohawked girl <laughs> carrying the violin.
2: <laughs> was there a point where, where you abandoned the notion of, uh, of symphony and, and said, yeah, I'm going to throw my lot in with the damn builders and really try to Yeah, well, this.
3: I met Mary Timoney actually the first day of school. And we figured out a way to live together. So, and she was already playing in bands. She played guitar. She was there for studying um, classical guitar, actually. Mm. So I just started playing with her, and then I was really thrilled to be studying with my teacher classically, but I knew that it wasn't the world for me. Classical music was not the world for me. I just, it just wasn't it. I didn't want to be, you know, playing music that I felt had already been perfected in recordings and performances live. You know, I just wanted to make new music. So I started taking really every gig I could in Boston, which was a very fertile musical environment. It was great.
1: So, Joan, uh, why don't you, you're, you're sitting at a beautiful grand piano. Tell I sure a, I am. Tell us what you're about to play.
3: I'm about to play a song called To Be Loved. And Let's see if I can pull this one off.
4: I'm so happy to be loved. Thrive. I'm an awful mess. I haven't a care. We're eternity. Oh, I feel the sigh on. Every breath that's met us here. This night dreams fantastic and it's my dear, and you love me too, how on earth could you have found me, huddle When you found me I
2: That's To Be Loved, live on Sound Opinions by Joan as Policewoman. Coming up on the show from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll continue our conversation with Joan Wasser, and later on we'll review the much-hyped new album from Metallica.
4: Stay
1: with me anyway Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Jim and I are continuing our discussion with Joan Wasser, also known as Jonas Policewoman. You know, she's played with Mary Timoney, Rufus Wainwright, and the acclaimed indie group Antony and the Johnsons. And I had to ask her about how uh, Antony Haggerty's delicate style influenced her music. Um, what was it? Uh, was there a turning point for you? I know I know that I've, I've read interviews with you where you've talked very fondly about working with Auntie he- Hegarty. That was a, a, a key relationship for you. What was it about that that sort of moved you along in terms of your career?
3: Well, I had um, I had begun writing my own songs, and actually I had put a band together called Black Beetle, and there was another songwriter in the band. We were both learning to write. We were writing together and separately. Michael Ty. And I joined his band. I I actually subbed for another violin player for Anthony's band. And we just hit it off so instantly that I was just in his band after that first rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And he was just someone that was making music that reminded me of the stuff I was trying to do. You know, I felt very subconscious about the fact that my stuff was very intimate. You know, I wasn't used to, like, revealing myself yet, Mm -hmm. you know, and being vulnerable and
0: in public. Mr. Muscle, forcing, bursting, stingy, thingy, into little me, me, me. But just ripple, said the cripple, as my jaw dropped to the ground, smile, smile. It's true, I always wanted love to be, oh.
3: I was like tougher than everyone else, you know. I could move the SVT amp myself, you know. Um, so he was just doing very like gentle music, and he was very supportive of my music. And when someone that you really look up to says you're you're doing a good thing, you know, it means a lot. I don't know. Uh, Anthony is just a very healing person, and just being around him, you just feel better.
2: I can mm-hmm. understand, though, Joan, how you know you're you're afraid to sing, and you're debating whether to come forward and sing, and yet you're you're playing with Anthony Johnson, who has this amazing, truly otherworldly voice. You're you're thinking about becoming a songwriter. You're you're maybe afraid to venture out on song uh, into in your own songwriting. Yet you're working with people like Rufus Wainwright, this incredible songwriter. Not
3: yet. Not yet. Not no. yet. Uh,
2: but but I mean, when it would come, yeah, you'd yeah. worked with incredible songwriters. You'd yeah. been close to Jeff Buckley, who yeah. was an incredible songwriter. I was mean, it's like, it's almost like I want to play football, but I'm gonna start by joining the Bears. was <laughs> <Yeah. know>? <laughs> like, it's tough when you you have people like that in your orbit. I would imagine it's true. Yeah. So where did you work up the gumption?
3: Well, I just, I had started playing out, you know, singing, fronting my band, Black Beetle. That started in 97 or 98. And I just, you know, I just kept setting up more shows so it would force me to play. And then I started playing solo shows in 1999 or 2000 that would force me even more to be comfortable and I just uh, I knew there was something there you know I knew that if it scared me that much that it was something that was worth pursuing. Uh,
1: We're going to continue the conversation in a minute but uh, let's have some more music. Okay. What do you want to play?
3: I'll play this thing.
2: So this is a half size guitar?
3: This is a guitar that they don't they don't Whip you for having at the security at the airport, <laughs> so
1: <laughs> it travels well.
3: Yeah. yeah, you can bring it on the plane. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it's for a little guitar. It sounds good, you know. It sounds the best mm-hmm. of a, little, of a little, little guitar. So this song is called "Hard White Wall." All right.
2: Hard White Wall by Joan Wasser, Jonah's policewoman. That's a that's a really beautiful and poignant song, Joan. Where where did it come from? Can you take us through writing that one?
3: Um, that song came from uh, standing in an airport on a payphone, talking to the person maybe I wanted to get with at that point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Staring at a
3: wall, at a blank wall, and just being like, "What am I doing in the airport again?" Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said it was a struggle to overcome uh, fears about sharing intimate facts, uh, and yet, you know, both albums uh, as Jonas Police Woman are it was very personal kind of songwriting. Are you over that yet?
3: Yeah, I'm over
2: it. Because now everybody thinks they know everything about you. Well,
3: right. Uh, they do know a certain amount about me because I am comfortable now, really, with, um you know, with revealing a lot of stuff just because I – I mean, it's like I've just really gotten over the preciousness of – by individual I mean mm. if I felt something everybody else has felt it like the, <laughs> the you know sp- you know the details are different that's it right, you know? right, right Right. so um I am very much over that um that just took a lot of playing um you know just to continue the story in 2004 Rufus asked me to um open for him and play in his band Rufus you know? Wainwright yeah. yeah he had been looking for a guitarist, violinist, singer. And there aren't a whole lot of that combination. Mm, yeah. So um I was all of a sudden playing solo in front of Rufus's crowd, which is an a great a, an incredible experience because first of all, these people love music, but also, you know, listen, you know. Yeah. Um but it also really really pushed me to be as good as possible um, because you did not want to be making a fool of yourself in front of those people <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know um, and that's also where um, a year later a gentleman from England saw me play at Birmingham Symphony Hall and he bought my EP and he was running a record store and he said I want to sell your EP in my record store and then he was like actually I want, I'm thinking about starting a label I want your EP to be my first release and just went on from there and I started releasing my, re- my records there and in Europe and started touring in Europe a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. Did, did you have the sound, you know, it's it's fully formed, you get a sense of, you know, that you had a very particular vision in mind and people, you know, always try to pin you down, what, what, what do you call it, and you've given some very good answers, one, one, one I think you call it American soul music, which is, I guess, general enough, but at the same time also points you in the right direction. And, and I think at one point on your MySpace site, uh, you were talking about beauty is the new punk rock. My question is, you know, when, when did you get a sense, it's not classical music, it ain't punk rock, you know, which are two huge influences on your life, obviously. How did you end up with this sound?
3: I don't really know. The music that I always sort of first want to listen to is Marvin Gaye. Al Green, Roberta Flack. Like, if I come home, it's like, what am I going to put on? Mm. Stevie Wonder I'm going to put on. that. That's kind of my first, that's my kind of, what do, you, what do you call that? What you come back to that it's your. Your
2: touchstone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You
3: know, it's the thing that I'm, I'm just sort of. I grew up listening to AM radio before I went to school and it was like, it was that stuff and disco, Mm -hmm. you know, and I guess the the first music that I, that really moved me was, uh, was like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. You know, I was super in new wave and punk rock. You don't really hear that in my music so much, but there's just, you know, there's little hints. Here and there. And then I just love a lot of sort of, um, you know, I love harmony. So I like rubs.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of turbulence in the lyrics. I mean, I mean, maybe that's where the punk stuff is there, you know, because you listen to the songs on the surface and you get the sense of, well, it's pretty. And then you listen to it and there's blood on the floor. You're sort of wiping your hands. And you're going, whoa, this is, there's some heavy duty stuff here. And I did want to ask you a Jeff Buckley question because it did, you know you had a you know a, a relationship with Jeff for three years, and the one thing that struck me about Jeff's music that was resonates with me to this day. I still remember seeing him at a um, bakery of all things. It was like a folk, little folk club, but it was really a, a bakery at the same time. He was playing in front of a bunch of pastry, and there was like ten people there, and it was a cold winter night. You know, no storm. This is before anybody really knew who he was. And I was just struck at this incredible sense of intimacy and also vulnerability. You almost felt voyeuristic watching this guy play. And it was just one of those like experiences that stays with you your whole life.
4: Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care. Well, it goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing. Hallelujah! Hallelujah!
1: Hallelujah! And I'm getting this same sense of what's coming out of these records. It's like it doesn't matter to you who's listening. It's almost like you have to do this, and it's coming out. I mean, how do you get to that place as a songwriter? And then, secondly, to be able to pr- perform that way, and maybe night after night on the road, getting to that same place. Because that's what, what killed me about Buckley, was just that he could get to that spot and make you feel like he's taking you with him.
3: I think we're both giant fans of Nina Simone, who did that, who's the queen of that, mm-hmm. you know, who would stop in the middle of the song and be like, Wrote this song <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, she was just,
1: yeah, was, she just she had some
3: no boundaries, yeah, none. I just really do honor the fact that this could be the last song I play. Mm-hmm. Who knows what's going to happen? And I am not a fatalist. It's not about how the tidal wave is going to come over the entire country. Like, it's not about that. It's just really, honestly, about who knows? Yeah. And it's you might as well just make the fact that you can make music just worth every 2nd Mm-hmm. And then also, it is so much for me, like, about when I perform live, like, I really try to get a sense of where the people are. Even if it's the same set, like, I have to talk to people in the crowd. Like, I have to get some feedback or just even a general sense, you know, if you're Germany, you're not going to get any words out of them. But, you know, just something, (laughs) you know, some kind of feeling back so you can really give them the show that – that they want from you. You know, mm-hmm. I, I am someone that wants to give people what they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously that ha- that has so much to do with me too. It's my interpretation of what you may want. But why not make the most of every moment? I mean, there's no reason not to.
1: Joan Wasser, otherwise known as Jonas Police Woman. It's been a treat, Joan. Thank you for coming in. My pleasure.
3: Why don't you say?
2: If you'd like to give us your sound opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the ninth Metallica album, plus Greg's addition to the Desert Island Jukebox. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Broken, Beat, and Scarred from the ninth album by Metallica, the best-selling heavy metal band of all time. Death Magnetic is the name of the new disc, and it was produced by Rick Rubin, whose specialty, of course, is resurrecting lost and hopeless trashed careers. <laughs> Artists that were once great and no longer are. Hetfield is singing in that tune, Greg, and, and I will say singing. Because, you know, he's mm. famous for the sandpaper growl, but on this album, he's uh, he's trying to, to crooning, vocalize. Crooning. He's, he's being more melodic. Yeah. He sings, uh, you know, you rise, you fall down, you're down and you rise again. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. That is, he would have us believe the story of Metallica. They've had their ups, they've had their downs, they're one of the best-selling arena acts in the world. When we last heard from them in uh, 2003, they were traveling with a uh, performance coach, a new age therapist who had them uh, learning how to communicate with each other and love themselves and love each other. They made an incredible documentary (laughs) about the making of that album, which is just uh, uh, almost self-parody. And now they're going back to the grandfather of all heavy metal philosophers, Frederick Nietzsche, in saying, you know, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. Rubin gave them some marching orders. He said, I want you to forget everything starting with the Black Album in 1991 up to the present. You know, that's when they put on the mascara. They sold out. They became MTV Darlings. It wasn't really a metal underground thing anymore. Ruben wanted them to reconnect with the garage band Roots, if not the unhealthy habits of the early days when they called themselves Alcoholica. They were hard partiers. They were hard rockers. He wanted them to write the second half of Master of Puppets, the 1986 album that uh, every Metallica fan will say is their greatest and many metal fans will say is the best metal album of all time. Uh, that was what he wanted them to do. Did they succeed? Well, that's going to be the second part of this review after we play a little bit of this new album, All Nightmare Long, a typical Metallica title. If ever there was one, is the song we want to play. Let's hear it on Sound Opinions.
1: Nightmare Long from the new metallic album, Death Magnetic. I think a pretty exciting track, actually. I think uh, the guitar playing on that track between James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett is pretty thrilling. Lars Ulrich, not a great heavy metal drummer, certainly not in comparison to somebody like uh, Paul Bostaff of Slayer, but certainly near the top of his game on this record as well. Uh, I'll cut right to the chase, Jim. My problems with this record don't lie so much in the the sound of the record, although the mix is horrendous, it should be pointed out. Yeah. But more so in James Hetfield's performance as a vocalist and a lyricist, I think it is god-awful. When you think about what this band was singing about in the 80s, you mentioned their their golden era, the Master of Puppets era. Mm -hmm. That was an air raid siren out that related (laughs) to a lot of people in the world. That was Cold War Reagan music. Yeah. That was the soundtrack for that era. Stuff was blowing up. The world was going to hell, and this was the soundtrack. And it was a perfect one. And It was one of many reasons why they were one of the great metal bands of all time during that era. They were trying to return to that area, but now we've got this post-therapy, touchy-feely, You know, my inner world is going to hell, James Hetfield, crooning, trying to
2: sing as opposed to, you know, I don't know what he's trying to do. Wait, he's he's supposed to sound like, but he doesn't do that anymore. You know, not only is it post-therapy, Greg, but it's post-millionaire. There's a picture floating around on the net of the bassist and Hetfield walking out of Armani on Rodeo Drive with tons of shopping bags under their (laughs) arms. And look, how are you going to be angry about the state of the universe and all the forces that would keep you down when you're spending uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars at Armani? It sounds insincere, Jim. That's that's my point here. I, I don't think they
1: believe in what they're singing about anymore, or certainly not Headfield. The sound of the record, I think we should address this. I mean, the, yes, the mix of this record the is, is pretty bad. I mean, It's a huge controversy. Mixing sessions apparently were kind of done last minute. Lars Ulrich apparently went in there and and had the sound compressed by all these high-priced engineers. I mean, they had some serious high-money guys mixing this record but it was so compressed the loudness levels were brought way up in order to get it played on radio this is now a radio band trying to appeal to the commercial spectrum rather than an underground metal band like they were in the eighties in the process they clipped off The high and the low end, and there's massive amounts of distortion on this Mm -hmm. record that is totally unintentional. Like when you've got distorted drums on a record, you know something's wrong with the
2: mix. When it's not intentional. I mean, Nirvana did that intentionally. I want to explain what compression is. The radio sound is compressed already, it comes at you, uh, you know, and kind of evens everything out, gets rid of the real high highs and the real low lows. Now, the reason that a TV commercial sounds so much louder Mm -hmm. than the main program that you're watching is that they compress the heck out of that so it'll jump out of the speakers and you can't tune it out they did that for this entire album beginning to end to what the techie blogs and some of the metal blogs online are saying is they're saying it's the most compressed album of all time it has set a new low or a new high however you want to look at it for this particular technique which really ruins sound quality at Mm -hmm. the expense of volume As for the music, you know, there's only one unapologetic misstep here, and that is the uh, grand piano and French horn (laughs) that opened the Unforgiven Three. You know, for the rest of it, I'm less of a Lars fan than you are. I mean, the guys in Mastodon and Disfear and Mictium could kick his... But oh, sure. and then have yeah. breakfast, okay? Yeah, sure. but, but, but Kirk Hammett is playing good solos and, and Hetfield is riffing. He's not singing so well and at least it moves. Mm-hmm. It's a little better. It's a lot better than anything they've done in the last 10 years but the sound is awful and then there's the Hetfield problem. I mean, frankly, the Jonas Brothers are more sincere in singing about their life today than Hetfield is. That's a big problem. Now, on Sound Opinions we rate things on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, which is worth explaining once in a while. You know, buy it, we're saying, I would write now cash on the barrel head pay my own money for this record you need to own mm-hmm. it too burn it is uh you know we're, we're on the fence i mean you, you might want to listen before you invest in this we're not 100 percent convinced and trash it is there are no redeeming values whatsoever yeah i'm going to give it a burn it because there are some moments that move i guess i was expecting so much worse and at least it isn't that bad i certainly wouldn't buy it though
1: yeah, half the tracks on this record are certainly quite worthy of Metallica. They are not the greatest Metallica, but it's certainly, as you said, better than I think anybody could have expected. 15 to 20 years after their peak so from that respect there's a few tracks you need to burn so i will give it a burn it as well
2: well you know and if you're on there on the net searching around to burn it there are actually fans who are doing their own edits of this record trying to clean up the over compression and cut down (laughs) the seven and nine minute songs to three and four minute songs they're cutting out some of the worst lyrics and some of the worst i mean there you go there's like you know metallica hates the idea of people playing with their music but those versions are kind of better than metallica's (laughs)
0: tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away,
4: island lost at sea. Oh. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded far from home. Oh, come on. Do
0: you remember? We were shipwrecked together.
4: Stranded out so of far from home. Stranded, yeah, mama.
2: As often as possible here at Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a turn, popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox and telling you about a track we cannot live without. Mr. Cott, it's your turn.
1: Thank you, Jim. Yet another sad day, a sad occasion in that uh, another musical great has died. Earl Palmer uh, died at the age of 83 in Los Angeles, and a lot of people out there are going, Who? Like Buddy Harmon, who we talked about on the show a few weeks ago, the great Nashville drummer, Earl Palmer uh, was one of the great unsung heroes of rock and roll. Throughout the, uh, the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, rock and roll would not exist without Earl Palmer's drumming. I firmly believe that. Before anybody knew what rock and roll was, Earl Palmer was bringing a heavier backbeat to rhythm and blues out of New Orleans in, in the late 40s, with, uh, first with Dave Bartholomew's band, and then as one of the key components of those early Fats Domino records that basically created a blueprint, not only for artists like Elvis Presley and Little Richard, but later on for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones who emulated the sounds they heard on those records, mm. and most particularly the work of earl palmer as the drummer on those records palmer's role in numerous hits out of new orleans in the 50s is is legendary in in that city Uh, not only did he play with uh, fats domino but people like lloyd price and smiley lewis and uh, most notably little richard and then later moved to la where he was part of the notorious wrecking crew which backed up numerous sessions out of los angeles he was one of the drummers of choice with Phil Spector. When Hal Blaine wasn't available, Earl Palmer was the drummer. When Earl Palmer wasn't available, it was Hal Blaine. It was one of those two guys on usually every big Phil Spector hit. And if you heard... River Deep, Mountain High by Tina Turner. That was Earl Palmer. Amazing drum work on that track. The Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, once again, and Earl Palmer tour de force. But I want to go back to that first era to pay tribute to Earl Palmer, and in particular, his work with those early singles that Little Richard cut Mm. in New Orleans. This, to me, is the most primitive, most brutal and most direct sound that rock and roll ever got. Elvis Presley, fine. Call him the king of rock and roll if you want. But from my mind, those Little Richard records out in New Orleans were the real deal. This is what rock and roll should and could sound like. And a lot of it had to do with Earl Palmer's drumming. Listen to Ready Teddy. Little Richard's voice, I mean, he sounds like he is about to fly off the rails. It's He's scary. He's ready to yeah. lose his mind. Yeah. And it's all based around the sound of that drumming. I mean, the drum is just pushing everything on this song. People think about a little Richard as a, as a piano player, and his percussive piano style was very much a part of those records. But on this record, there's very little piano. Mm. It's really Palmer's drums that are driving this whole thing, and the little flurries that he's bringing in just before Lee Allen's saxophone solo, or the way parts of the song just drop off, and it's just all you hear is little Richard's voice, And Earl Palmer's drums answering it
2: That's rock and roll It's like the guy is hitting his snare drum with a baseball bat (laughs) All the more impressive uh, when you consider that there's one microphone in the room Lars has 57 microphones on his snare drum And a mountain of compression And, And this guy is one guy and one drum It's really something to keep in mind Is that
1: the drums were not directly mic'd And yet they were such a prominent part of the mix in these songs Ready Teddy with Earl Palmer on drums Little Richard on vocals On Sound Opinions
0: Ready, set, go man, go I got a gal that I love so I'm ready, really, ready I'm ready, really, ready I'm ready, really, ready I'm ready, ready, ready To rock and roll Going to the corner Pick up my sweetie pie She's my rock Dung with dogs, I headed for the gym to the sock cow bowl. The dogs are really jumping, the cats are going wild.
2: Teddy by the great Little Richard with Earl Palmer on drums. A pick by Greg Cott for the Desert Island Jukebox. What do we have on the show next week, Mr. Cott?
1: Next week, very exciting stuff, Jim. We're going to do one of our periodic dissections of a musical genre we love, Psychedelic Soul. That means Sly and the Family Stone and The Temptations all the way through Van Hunt and Gnarls Barkley.
2: We have some thank yous to say, Greg. Jonas Policewoman was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. And Sound Opinions was produced, as always, by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, a man in the style of Jonas Policewoman that we like to call Tori as Dead mother, Tori Southside Mountain Hey, how you doing? Sorry I can't get
1: On sound opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: New messages.
1: Hey guys, it's Steve from Grays Lake, Illinois. I have to say, you're not always right, but when you are, you're dead on. And you were the first people I thought about after my
0: Ticketmaster experience today. ACDC tickets went on sale at 10 a.m., and at 10 a.m. to the Second, I was online on the Ticketmaster site, and I got to the
1: ACDC ticket spot, and it was sold out. 10.01, it was sold out. And I went back on the site at 10.10 and did a search for ACDC, and they linked me directly to the Ticket Scalper that Ticketmaster owns. For the cheapest tickets for these 89.50 face value tickets were $185. I just can't imagine that's legal. But that's what they did,
0: and I just think it's the biggest scam I've ever seen. Well, thanks a lot. Hi, this is Mia from Chicago. I was just listening to the Buried Treasures episode, and one of you mentioned Lady Tron, um, this album sounding different than all their other albums. And while I love Lady Tron, I, I just can't believe that you would think that. I think everything that they've done pretty much sounds exactly the same. And then there was the men in sandals. Jim, I, I don't know where you find these people, but uh, I have to say that the you can't kick ass in Tiva's line was fantastic. Thanks, guys. Love your show. If
4: the
1: Hey, Jim and Greg. Uh, This is Greg. I'm calling from New York City. I just got through the Buried Treasures podcast, and you guys are always turning me on to something new. And um, one very treasure I'd love to see unearthed is a band. They're out of Brooklyn. They're called Ludlow Lions. They have this melodic sort of UK sensibility for just good rock songs and great lyrics. They're very energetic. Fantastic live band. The EP is a definite buy It um, Anyway, keep up the good shows, guys. I'm a huge fan, and see ya. Bye.
0: Hi, um, my name's Rachel Thompson, and I'm from Pittsburgh. I just wanted to comment on your love for the Naked Brothers. Normally, you guys are too heavy for me. Normally, when I listen, I'm like, what? No, this is too loud. I must say that the Naked Brothers is by far the most intolerable thing I've ever heard in the opposite direction. I think it's actually more irritating and saccharine and asinine than uh, the Jonas Brothers will ever be. I love pop. That's not pop. That's just pain. Pain with a guitar. Thanks. Bye.
1: Hey guys, this is Seth in Chicago. just wanted to say great show about the buried treasures. I'm downloading Torch as we speak. I just wanted to say that the second time I've listened with my daughter, and both times she talked about the boy bands, and what you said about Naked Brothers is definitely true. They are by far a superior band, and even though she hated your show for the longest time and wondered why you kept talking over the music, she is now a solid listener, as am I, so... Up good
4: work.
2: No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, one 859 We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.